Hi, I'm Michael Apple. I'm joining conversation by political analyst from the Institute for Global Dialogue, Sanusha Naidu. Sanusha, thank you for your time. Um, have you been able to get to reading the Transnet uh, report? Uh, good afternoon, uh, Michael. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. Pleasure to be chatting with you. Yeah, I did. Uh, I managed to capture a little bit, mind the pun, of the report. Uh, in analyzing and reading and whatever. And it is a quite an overwhelming report. I mean, both volumes, well, I call them volumes, the acting the chief justice calls it parts one and two. But I think it's quite overwhelming in terms of the information that's there. And more importantly, I think the kind of transactions that were taking place. The big, the, the big question that both reports have to prove or, or establish is that state capture took place. And I think they do that quite eloquently or quite in-depth in the kind of information that's furnished, the analysis that uh, is provided with the findings and the recommendations and conclusions. I think on the Transnet one, it shows you quite clearly what was the ecosystem of, of state capture. How, firstly, the, 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 the capture itself was identified in where it will happen. So where was the money trail? Where would we actually go? Where was the money that needed to be captured? But firstly, before you capture the money, you've got to create a compliant board. So how do you then get the pressure or you influence the appointment of board members? And not just of, uh, in, uh, you know, the influence of, uh, of who do you appoint on boards and the relationship of patronage networks and rent-seeking behavior, but it's also the question of the way in which you appoint people in particular positions on boards who can then sign off on these issues, on these, on these, on these transactions, who can then, you know, the irregularity of what the role of the board is, and I think that comes out also very clearly in the in the way in which the uh, issues around Transnet are exposed in the in the second uh, part of the of the report. And in that context, I think you're seeing common denominators of implicated persons. If you look at one, Mr. Salim Essa, he's a common denominator as an enabler as a facilitator, as an interlocker in all of these uh, transactions that have been irregular and so forth. You look at, in the case of um, uh, Mr. Anoj Singh, you know, not being able to answer some of those questions and playing a very kind of um, an ignorant kind of testimony before the commission, which then doesn't show that he actually should have served and that capacity as finance finance officer, because he wasn't applying the rules of the Public Financial Management Act that that you have to apply in the context of uh, what 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 are the governance uh, frameworks that SOEs had to comply with. So these boards are really where the intelligence was happening, the intelligence of how do you capture the money and so forth. So I think that comes out very starkly. Whilst the information is quite uh, voluminous and it's very much in depth. I think you have to start thinking about the way in which the orchestration of capture takes place as well. The in, the way in which people have decided that it will be particular SOEs that we are going for. And you got your Denels, you got your Transnets, you got your SAAs, you got your ESCOMs, and and these were key. In, these were key SOEs in the infrastructure and in the. Uh, economic infrastructure and delivery of the state services. You know, so Transnet's market demand strategy saw 300 billion being pumped into five divisions 
of Transnet and locomotives procurement would I've seen varying numbers between fifty to seventy billion was to be spent on on locomotives procurement and that's really where an, a very nice feeding frenzy took took place with the likes of regiments and Trillion and McKinsey and all the various Gupta companies and Gupta affiliated and Gupta linked companies, everybody getting a cut out of the the procurement deal. And and then at the end of the day, the damn trains are too tall for the majority of our network. So, I mean, they couldn't even get that right. The grand scale of the theft here is astonishing. Did we derive any benefit out of what Mr. Molefe, Singh, Siabonga Gama, what what any of those big wigs were doing? Did did the South African taxpayer derive any benefit from their time at at that particular SOE? Unfortunately, Michael, I have to say no. I have to, you know, sadly enough, it's not just Transnet. You look at Eskom, you look at the amount of pain the South African taxpayer and the South African citizen has to go through in order to absorb the costs of this capture. I mean, you look at our transport system, our rail network. All of that should have been a functioning, uh, integrative approach to our economy to connect people to the market, to the workplace, to actually make uh, transport more affordable for people. Because if you're going to spend that kind of money on locomotives and get it wrong, then the question is, what was the real intention of putting that money into, into these public coffers? And at the end of the day, I think the South African public is the real victim in all of this. It's not the political elites. It's not the economic elites. It's not your trillions and your, and your, and your affiliates and all of that. For me personally, I mean, I know people raise this question a lot about this family that was suddenly given all of this power to be able to shape and influence. But at the same time, you've got to ask yourself, or I ask myself every single day, somebody in the ruling elite enabled them to do this. Because if you didn't enable them to do this, we wouldn't be sitting with this. You know, it's, it's, the money is just mad money. It's unimaginable, the amount of money that has gone. You, you think about it and you ask yourself, how much more must, must the ordinary South African pay for the greed of these individuals? Not just the Guptas. The greed of everybody else in this. Like you say, it was a feeding trough. This is where we are. This is where we're going in. This is where we're going to capture all of these resources. And not for a single moment there was any remorse. Not for a single moment there was any shame. Not for a single moment there was any thought that the people that are going to suffer the most are the people that are sitting in your informal settlements who still don't have proper housing, proper water, sanitation roads, etc. They're not connected to the market. And yet you are sitting there and you're thinking, it's okay for me to steal. So somewhere in all of this, whilst there are implicated individuals, I think we also got to think about who gave this go ahead. Because to do this, it has to be a very, very systematic approach to saying, we're going to do this. We're going to basically steal money from the state. So... The report obviously makes a finding in relation to just how much uh, the Guptas were able to spirit away out of Transnet, and it's you know forty-two billion rand. By the time the the ESCOM report comes out, that forty-two billion rand may look like a drop in the ocean. What do you think? I, I agree with that assessment, and and even think the forty-two billion that we see 
in the report that um, is presented as the money that was captured. I don't think that is even the accurate figure at this point in time. We don't know whether it's bigger than that. Um, and of course, it's also possible that this is just what, this is the tip of the iceberg of what we are seeing in coming out in the four years that the, Zondo, that the State Capture Commission has been working. And I think one of the, one of the interesting recommendations even in the context of Transnet is asking the na- na- national prosecuting authorities or the prosecuting authorities of the state to dig deeper because they've now got this information that they can use that has been put together by the commission as an architecture of what was happening and as a context with where the money has been stolen and what's going on. So this is this is a lot of a lot of the contextual framing of this of this information is there for the prosecuting authority. But one of the things that I that I found interesting in the analysis of Transnet was the question of racketeering. How do we interpret that in the South African case law? And how do we interpret it under POCA, which is the Prevention of Organized Crime Act? Uh, I think I got the acronym maybe a bit um, broad in there. And I think one of the things that the um, acting chief justice says in that in, in relation to racketeering, which is a big global issue as well, you know, in, in various parts of the world, if you look at the G20 as well, you, racketeering is not just one simple act or one simple uh, act of, of, of defrauding or anti-corruption, I mean, corruption or graft or whatever. It is a systematic way in which you put together a network of racketeering that involves individuals, that involves different systems of, of, of defrauding the state or defrauding global uh, networks. Um, and, and if you look at the G20, the G20 has, has to deal with this financial global governance system and how do you put in the kinds of checks and balances. I think in South Africa, the question would be now is how would the prosecuting authority take this forward? Because the um, in the report, it is recommended that their further investigation needs to be taken for these implicated individuals at Transnet. And so the question is, how do you define that as a criminal act in the context of racketeering? Because very often racketeering is associated with a single act, with a single criminal activity, or maybe it's just corruption, maybe it's that or whatever. But I think at the other end of this is us now, I mean, the legal, the, the prosecuting authority, our, our justice system, and looking at a criminal justice system, looking at how we define organized crime was what we saw in what the report says about Transnet organized crime and how that organized crime was then effected to defraud the state and capture to happen. It's amazing the role that consultants played. Um, you looked at the South African Revenue Service with Bain and Co. You've got McKinsey here, and the use of certain financial advisors, uh, trillion regiments. But there really was, and the the report makes this point: all of the skills required um, for all of the tenders and the deals that Transnet required, all the skills were in house. There was a team of forty experts that could have done all the work. Yet they 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 went to market and they. They doubled up on their fees to be able to to bring in these consultants. Um, I think it would be naive to think that that isn't uh, practiced quite widely across government. What do you think? No, I think so. I think when you when you look at consultants globally, I mean, one of the areas I look at is aid, 
aid that comes from countries to developing countries or to underdeveloped countries. And it's, it's interesting when you look at the aid uh, that eventually gets to what the intent and purposes are for that aid. By the time you get to the actual real, real impact of that money, it's almost a fraction what was originally promised because you've got the consultants, you've got the, the they set up a, 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 a um, an in-country office because they need to tell you how to, 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 to manage the money. They set up a parallel financial services, an auditing company. And this is what consultants do, not just in South Africa, they do it around the world. So in the last couple of, in the last decade and a half or more, what has happened is that the consultancy world has moved increasingly into this kind of governance architecture where they are now the ones that are the uh, experts that are advising government on how to use money that's coming in. But there's a, there's a complicit nature here between the consultant who acts as an intermediate between the government and, of course, your, your, your um, contractor that's coming in. And so the contractor has a bit of an interesting relationship with the consultant company. And so they work out a particular way in which they, you know, it's the 10% of everything. That's the bottom line. I get 10% and I will make the recommendation that you are the most appropriate contractor or, t or tender uh, uh, bidder that needs to get the contract. And because there's this, there's this complicit nature. And so this is, this is what I find interesting about the entire four years of what, the, what the Zondo Commission has produced in these two reports, is that we are now having to deal with the fact that South Africa is not an exception to global, global norms around the way in which money is being captured in the way um, countries are, are now realizing that consultants and consultant fees and tender projects, are, you know, the evaluation of these projects is all going into this, compli this complicit nature and, in, and, and, and patronage network between state, uh, 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 these consultants, and of course, these bidders. And so this is where I, I think South Africa is caught in the dilemma that when we, when we think about ourselves, we have to, dis you know, assuage this idea that we are exceptions to rules. We are actually now experiencing what the rest of the world is experiencing. If you go to Latin America and you look at the way the consultants work there, if you go to Asia, for example, and you look at countries like China and India and etc., you know, there's this. Now you're beginning to see in 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 China, there's that there's that need to 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 push these 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 ten percent guys out of the range because these guys have been making a whole host of 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 enrichment uh, contracts for themselves. So this is what Xi Jinping has done, but. If you go across, you know, in, 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 in parts of Asia, Africa, even in North America, in the developed economies, there's always the person that comes in and says, I'm the guy that can make it happen. I'm the company that can make it happen. I also think there needs to be something about these consultancy firms, because these consultancy firms are actually taking away, like you rightly pointed out, in-house skills. Why do you have to subcontract them to do a vetting and a monitoring and evaluation and a, and a feasibility study of a contract? Why do they need to come in with their big consultancy fees when you have the in-house expertise? You earlier spoke about being caught in a dilemma. Somebody else caught in a dilemma is Cyril Ramaphosa. He is receiving these reports. He has publicly acknowledged that he is going to respond to Parliament by the 30th of June. 
yet he's a man that needs to get re-elected by his ANC comrades in December. The rock and hard place analysis here. You act too harshly against your comrades. Does that place him in a vulnerable position come December? Or is he in a, in a powerful enough position to, to have the NPA, the Hawks, um, who should be doing their work independent of what Mr. Ramaphosa thinks, but let's not be naive. And enough of his comrades go down or are indicted or are being investigated. Does that place him in a vulnerable position come December? I think he's in a very, very vulnerable position. I think the bigger challenge for him is whether or not he's going to be decisive. Does he put party first? Does he put the state first? And I think that is the big challenge for Mr. Ramaphosa or President Ramaphosa. I mean, this is a very, very challenging year, not just for, for the state, but for the party. So in the state, you know, you got this, this, this kind of thinking that in an elective year previously for the, for the party, it's always about the state going nowhere slowly, even more so this year because of the, the dynamics. You know, if you look at, the, at, at what has happened in the beginning of the year, how different opponents in the party have come out guns blazing with their positioning on issues of the, challenging the constitution and challenging the judiciary and so forth. But at the same time, it's also about whether or not in the party you're going to be living dangerously in the elective year. So in the, in, it's the year of going slowly nowhere in the state, while in the, in, the, in the party, it's the year of living dangerously. And is Mr. Ramaphosa willing to do that in the party right now? Because he talks about renewal, he talks about recalibration, he talks about a unity. We know this party is in a complete state of, 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 of non-renewal. It, it cannot be renewed in the way, in the current context that it finds itself in. And I'm not sure there's anything there to renew. And that's just the way we have to be very honest about it. But then he's got a dilemma because at the end of the day, he needs the slates in the party to vote him back in. He needs the Women's League. If you look at what's going on with the uh, Judicial Review Commission on the Chief Justice position, quite interesting uh, developments over the weekend and the recommendation. Uh, whether he chooses to accept or not, there's another big de Twitter debate happening there. Then you look at the fact that uh, he doesn't have the capacity of the MPA. You've got the challenges there, uh, whether or not they have the capacity. The presidency came out not so long ago saying that they feel that the, that the bureaucracy in the state is hampering their ability to go and move forward on prosecutions. You've got dockets that go missing. Evidence is no longer found. I mean, you've got a whole crisis going on in, in the bureaucracy of the state. Then, of course, he has to worry about who does, he, who, do he, who does he align with? Who's his running mate? How do they bring in whatever they need to bring in? Who is he going to challenge? And so forth. Is he willing to risk a second term in order to do the right thing for the state? And I think that's his dilemma. What uh, sloganeering or <laughs> platitudes are you looking to avoid come the State of the Nation address later this week? What, what, what do you, I mean... If you listen to to President Ramaphosa's speeches in an ANC capacity, it's renewal of the organization, a fight against state capture, and and so on. What do you want to hear coming out of the the president come Sona time? Bearing in mind everything we know that happened under his watch uh, as deputy president, and some will still will, will argue that so much of the wrongdoing continues to this day. What do you want to hear coming from him uh, at the Sona? You know, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath on this Sona, to be quite honest. I think we're going to see 
more of a way in which he's going to have, like you said, platitudes. He's going to talk about the reports that he's received thus far. He's going to say that, I just saw something on the news now that suggests that he's going to talk about what's the way forward or some some level of, of taking the investigations and the prosecution forward. But I'm not holding my breath because I think that he has to he he has to show us the decisive nature of his leadership, and if you look at his last uh, four uh, Sona addresses, there's a lot that he's put in there, but nothing has substantively substantively been implemented, and that's the challenge he has. So I think that there are going to be these 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 things that uh, he's going to talk about that he understands that there's a crisis, he understands that there's a challenge, that there's a governance deficit, that the state. Uh, capture reports one and two have shown that uh, there's this implications of, of what capture means. But I don't think he's going to be, uh, he's going to wait till June 30th, I think. And when he does ask, come to parliament, he's going to then talk to parliament in that capacity as the, as the head of the, of, the, of the Republic. So I'm not holding my breath that the president is going to give us some earth shattering announcement in the state of the nation on this report, because he still has to get the final report uh, to uh, from 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 the chief from the acting chief justice, and in that final report, it's also the role that he played. You mentioned his role as deputy state president at the time when all this was going on in the second term of the Jacob Zuma presidency. And the question then, I'm very interested to 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 read how does the 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 chief the acting chief justice interpret the testimony that the president gave both as the head of the party and as the head of the republic and whether or not he would come to the conclusion because i think in his 12 hour um what you call this um appearance before the judicial review commission for the post of chief justice there was a lot about that about did he give the president a bit of the benefit of the doubt. Was he not too soft on him? And so forth and so forth. So I think that's going to be interesting. Does he say that the president has to be accountable? Because then we're sitting with a different set of dynamics because this is the president of the republic. And if former president Jacob Zuma had essentially not held up the oath of his office as the president of the republic, and if the third report kind of in the intimates, not even explicitly, but intimates in a kind of roundabout way that the president may also have been, have, would have dropped the ball on certain things in the way that he presented it. Then we're sitting with another bigger dilemma in terms of whether he also did not uphold the oath of his office as deputy president. And then, of course, what he did as president. But remember that he's not being he's not being judged as president of the republic. It was his time as deputy president of the of the state. That's a very interesting point you make. Actually, the reason the public protector advocate Tuli Maronsela didn't want Jacob Zuma to be the person choosing uh, who would chair an inquiry was because Jacob Zuma was himself named several times and was implicated in the wrongdoing. Therefore, she appointed the Chief Justice to come up with a name which would be suitable for the President. What if the the President now, who was the Deputy President then of the party, is also an implicated party now? That leaves that leaves us in a very precarious position Sanisha Naidu, thanks for racking my brain and appreciate your time. It's a pleasure, Michael. Absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you so much for the opportunity.